Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Happy morning after a sweep. Monday. Toronto Blue Jays rolling. Take all three in New York against the Mets. An undefeated road trip since that one was just three games. Zoom out. Seven and two in their last nine. Three consecutive series victories. You know the talking point. 27 and 12 now outside of the American League East. In 13 series against non-divisional opponents, they've now won 10. 10 and three series-wise. Three of those wins being sweeps. The only loss being a a two-game sweep. Um, That's a really, really strong record. 27 and 12 outside of your division. The Toronto Blue Jays are just not going to have a lot of opportunity in the next little bit to make up some of that American League East divisional record. They'll play the Orioles for three next week. Then they play the Red Sox Canada Day weekend. That's it for AL East competition until well after the All-Star break. That's it. Like that, that is the, the three against Baltimore, three against Boston on Canada Day weekend. And then the next is Baltimore again, starting July 31st. So you're going to be looking for a very long time at the Toronto Blue Jays record against American League East teams. And it's not going to be very good because they're just not going to play any. It's six and 15 right now. Even if they swept those two upcoming series that push you to 12 and 15, you'd still be saying, well, they, they can't get it done against American League East competition. That's how bad it was over the last couple the couple of weeks preceding this last week. I set all that up not to say that what the Blue Jays are doing isn't good, but to say that we're going to have to probably pocket some of the AL East discussion just as a matter of the Jays aren't playing against American League East teams. So there's nothing they can do for the next uh, month or so. What they can do is continue to take care of business against non-American League East opponents. That's a slower road back up the standings, of course. If you can't play against the teams that are immediately in front of you, you have to outperform them even more significantly to pass them. You can't, you don't have those quote unquote two game swing games. Blue Jays go seven and two over the last nine. They only put a game and a half dent in the chase for the division and barely a dent in the wild card because all of the teams around them are pretty hot right now as well. They go seven and two over their last nine. They gain one game on the Yankees, one game on the Rays. That's life in the AL East. But Jays right now, more importantly, if you are someone who looks at the standings this early, uh, what they've been able to do with taking care of non-divisional opponents is take a dent out of the wild card race in terms of how many teams they'd have to jump. At least right now, they're the next team out. That is preferable to having to wrestle four or five teams on your way to the wild card conversation. Boston, the angels, the Mariners have all kind of fallen off uh, and the AL central has settled in nicely. Um, (laughs) The standings are really comical right now where obviously the A's are uh, embarrassingly bad at at 12 and 49. They're winning less than 20% of their games, fewer than 20% of their games. And then 11, 12, 13, 14 in the American league is all AL central teams. Um, You know, the deal by now. Anyway, I say that because there have been some tweet replies or or text line texts about, yeah, well, they're so bad against the American League East. Uh, you know, you, you have to win in your own division. It's absolutely true. Uh, but the Jays aren't going to have opportunity for a while. So sit back and enjoy a sweep of the New York Mets. Here's how it went down. little recap for you. They went 3-0 on Friday. It's a beautiful game despite the, the 
delay. Uh, our pal Sarah Langs is honored with pregame ceremony. You see her all over the broadcast, all around baseball. Even Woj and the ESPN crew for Game Two of the NBA Finals last night. Um, you know, bringing on her her partner Stats Williams, uh, who who threw out a not so great first pitch, the one blemish on the day. That's all. Um, really, really fun night that also includes Chris Bassett pitching against the clock because his wife's in labor. He goes after the rain delay, seven and two thirds shutout innings, eight strikeouts, zero walks, only three hits allowed. Books it out of there, gets a flight home, makes it in time for the birth of his son, Colson. So pretty much a perfect weekend for Chris Bassett. He hits the paternity list, by the way. So Jay Jackson is up with the team right now as an extra arm. That's kind of important. We'll come back to that. But the Jays win that game three, nothing Dalton Varsho, by the way, hits a ninth inning insurance home run. That has a lot of meaning because as Varsho shared with Hazel May and talked about after the game, and we had talked to Sarah Langs about it because Varsho was the Jays representative to sign a bat to be auctioned off for ALS on Friday. Um, Varsho's wife lost her mother to, to ALS. So a particularly touching one for him and also a really important piece of two run insurance hitting uh, Bo Bichette giving Varsho the huge hug in the dugout afterward. Um, so that gives Jordan Romano a little bit of breathing room. He comes in, he gets a relatively clean save three, nothing Jays roll it on to Saturday. And it's another pitcher's duel. Do you want to have a pitcher's duel against Tyler McGill? Uh, well, you should probably feel a little bit better about your chances. Tyler McGill is not bad, but uh, if he walks five batters against you, you should probably be getting more than one run. Alas, that's how it goes down for the Blue Jays. Jose Brios with another really strong start. Six innings of one run ball. La Machina is back. Uh, 10 consecutive starts going at least five innings. His ERA over his last 10 down to 248. Maybe he's not a 248 guy, but I think we can, after this 10-game stretch, very, very confidently say the Brios, the high-level Brios concerns from last year and from the first two games of the season are behind us. He, he looks like a reasonable version of Jose Brios now. So it goes into the ninth inning, tied up at one. Jays haven't been able to do much damage. Mets haven't been able to do much damage. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. comes up in a big spot, hits one down the line to score the go-ahead run in the top of the ninth. Nice piece of hitting, part of a, you know, a week where Vlad continued to show process side improvements, his ability to just find some outfield on a tough pitch, not swing for the deep ball in that situation, a situational hitter. Um, you look into some of the numbers, and yes, Vlad has had a bit of a struggle with situational hitting and, you know, some ground into double plays and things like that on the season though, him and Boba both, when it comes down to two outs and, and runners in key spots, they've been pretty effective and Vlad shows it there coming through with the go ahead. Um, and then in this one, it's actually Eric Swanson who gets the save opportunity after Nate Pearson had given them an electric eighth inning and pick up, picked up the win. So another good one from the bullpen, Richards Pearson Swanson come through with Romano unavailable. Sunday now, looking for the sweep. Yusei Kikuchi against Kodai Senga. Uh, they have faced each other back in Japan's NPB League. They are friendly. They have the Daniel Vogelback connection, not through the Blue Jays, but through the Mariners and now the Mets. Uh, so very, very fun one. Senga's first time pitching on standard four-day Major League Baseball rest instead of the once-a-week model that Japan uses and that the Mets have been trying to be careful with him around. 
He doesn't really have it. Five walks over two and two-thirds innings. The Jays get to him a little bit. They build an early 4-0 lead. Yusei Kikuchi is pretty good. Gives up two over five innings. Eight strikeouts to just one walk. He gave up two home runs, but they were both solo. They are both the Tommy fam. A guy can have a day against you. It's, it's not the end of the world for that to happen. Uh, and because you didn't walk anyone, those are solo home runs, and they minimize the damage. Jay's turned to Nate Pearson for the sixth, and only his second time this year pitching on consecutive days. He struggles a little bit. He also gives up two solo home runs. Again, not a not the end of the world to give up solo home runs. You just don't want to give up four of them as a team. So the Jays have blown the lead at this point. It's 4-4, and the self-proclaimed and then dugout-proclaimed MVP, Brandon Belt, comes through with a two-run two home run in the seventh to put them ahead. From there... The bullpen does its job. It's Adam Simber. It's Eric Swanson again, his third time pitching in four days. That little blip where Swanson allowed a couple runs a couple games in a row, that feels long behind him. He's right back to being, uh, you know, super high leverage and and very, very effective for John Schneider. And we're going to go through kind of the bullpen hierarchy with Arden Zwelling in the second hour of this show as we look at John Schneider's new environment with Nate Pearson in leverage, Eric Swanson being this version of Eric Swanson again. And then Jordan Romano comes in for a nice clean save, his 15th of the season, gets his ERA back down to three. So the Jays sweep. Pretty good weekend. You look at all the things that went down in it. Uh, The bullpen, very, very effective pitching almost exclusively in leverage. All three starters have good to incredible starts as they continue to, with the exception of Alec Manoa, who goes tonight, look like a very solid rotation once again. Oh, by the way, those two things are related. If your pitchers are going deeper into games and you have to use your bullpen a little less and John Schneider can go to the weapons he wants when he wants to because they're not overworked and you haven't overtaxed the bullpen, the bullpen, it stands to reason, will perform better. Those are all great. Brandon Bell continues on his hot turn after a rough April. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. continues to look like a guy on the verge of a potential breakout. As a home run on Sunday, his first in a month against a non against an actual pitcher, we should say. Uh, he has the obviously the game-winning hit on Saturday. Uh, good stuff all around. Dalton Varshow has the nice moment. So there's a lot there. Seven and two over the last nine. Then proves them to 27 and 12 outside of the American League East, like I said. Now, if you're looking at what's ahead, it's four against the Astros. So things do not get easier. You are technically against the non-American League East team this week for four. And really, you're home for seven, and you've got the division-leading Twins in on the weekend. And we just saw the Twins for three. They weren't all that impressive. The Jays took two from the series. The, we can rehash all the conversations about the Twins are inflated by the AL Central, and that's almost definitely true. But they're at least we learned not pushovers. They have the second-best ERA in all of baseball as a staff because their starters have been solid and their bullpen's been pretty good. Not a pushover. But before that... You have the best pitching staff in baseball in the Houston Astros coming in for four. So if you thought the mention of no ALE stuff was an indicator things are getting easier, I think again, the Astros are 35 and 24. They've outscored opponents by 58 runs. Again, the best pitching staff in baseball, even though they've been just kind of an average offense, an average offense, by the way, that could take even more of a ding. Um, They are going to 
call up Greg Kessinger, uh, an infield prospect, because they've been running super, super thin with Jose Altuve dealing with an oblique thing over the weekend. It doesn't, it's not immediately clear if Altuve is going to hit the IL or another player will be optioned down just to get some additional positional versatility in there. But reading the tea leaves, it seems like maybe Altuve is IL bound, which would make a, a lineup that's been underwhelming and underperformed a little bit even thinner. This is still the Houston Astros. You still got to go through Jordan Alvarez and Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker. And would it surprise anyone if Jose Rebreu found it for a four game series? Probably not, but they are a pitch first Houston Astros team, which makes them a really interesting contrast to the Toronto blue Jays who yes, have gotten really good pitching so far this year. They are up to seventh in baseball in ERA as a staff. And that's with their presumed ace, Alec Manoa, having one of the worst seasons in all of baseball right now. Where the contrast comes in, though, is that the Astros are always able to find guys. It doesn't seem to matter how many guys are on the IL, how many guys they lose in free agency or or trade. There are always more pitchers. There's always money in the banana stand for the Tampa Bay Rays and the Houston Astros. The Toronto Blue Jays do not have that. And part of the reason the Alec Manoa struggles have been so pronounced is that there's no next man up in triple a there's not a next man up in double a uh, if there was it would be ricky tiedemann who hasn't pitched in a month and everyone is very very quiet about what's going on with him the astros always seem to have depth you're going to see some names in this series that maybe you're not all that familiar with brandon belak hunter brown Renell blanco all three of those guys have been very solid starters this year all three of those guys are either long ago international signings or mid round draft picks. They are not the fruits of the Astros tanking years. They're the fruits of the Astros constantly being able to find and develop young pitchers for organizational depth. It's a huge, huge asset that they have. We also see Framber Valdez in this series, by the way, who himself is a pretty good success story and uh pretty lethal at the top of that rotation, sporting a two sixteen ERA right now. I bring that up because not only because the, the Jays are about to play this Astros team, but because in the second hour, we're going to have Arden Zwelling on. And I, I do want to get into with him, even though things are positive right now with Alec Manoa on the Hill tonight, let's try to diagnose why the Jays don't have major league ready pitching depth, because it is, you know, it was 2017 when this front office took over and started kind of reshaping things. You've had a handful of drafts now that, you know, we use kind of a five-year window because once a player is drafted, it's five years before they have to be on the 40-man or the Rule 5 eligible. Um, you know, we can start to look at the earlier drafts that they've had and the ability to sustain depth. And we know they've traded a lot of pieces away. And, you know, some of those pieces look like, hey, you traded and sold high at the right time. Others, like a Simeon Woods-Richardson, still look moderately interesting. But it does stand in stark contrast to teams like the Rays and Astros who have been in contention longer than the Blue Jays are better able to maintain that org depth. It's also interesting because uh, the Jays' big front office addition from right before the season in James Click, guess what two organizations he was with before he came to Toronto? He's the general manager of the Houston Astros. Before that, he was a longtime member of the Tampa Bay Rays. Maybe the Jays are trying to find something here or trying to discover what's been missing for them. We're also going to talk to Doug Fox in the next uh, block. He runs futureblue which is your 
absolute go-to source for Blue Jays prospects up. I know there are a lot of good prospect things out there. We bring Keith Law on regularly. Um, MLB Pipeline at MLB.com is terrific. Baseball America, Fangraphs, all those things. Um, I'm not sure there's anyone outside of the Blue Jays organization who is as focused on Jays prospects day-to-day as Doug Fox is. So we'll talk to him about some of that as well. Um, again, Arden's going to join us in studio for the whole second hour. And take your text, the 590-590 throughout the show. It's obviously a bit more positive this week than it was this time last week. Uh, You take seven of nine, even against lesser competition. I'd imagine there are some Blue Jays fans who have exhaled, whether it's about Jose Brios, whether it's about Yusei Kikuchi taking a a bit of a step back prior to Sunday's start, whether it's about, you know, Brandon Belt and and Vlad and how the middle of this order looks a little different uh, when those two guys are, are hitting a little better. One other note, just because I've been asked about it a handful of times. In terms of that pitching depth, Cleveland DFA'd Zach Plesak on the weekend. Got asked about that one a couple times. I will warn that if a pitcher is bad enough for a team to DFA a guy, he's probably not going to fix everything that's wrong with your team. Uh, Zach Plesak had a 759 ERA over five starts, and he had a 756 ERA over five starts at AAA so far this year. Having said that, it's a guy who ate 131 innings last year with a mid four ERA and 140 innings the year before that with a mid four ERA and is only a couple seasons removed from being a mid rotation starter. I don't think he steps in and fixes anything for the Blue Jays right now, but if you wanted to try to take a flyer on a guy like that, have him throw a couple triple A starts and see what you can shake out and what your pitching coaches can do with him. There are worse options out there. Uh, Julio Tehran, we just saw a guy with a bad minor league ERA and was available on the opted out of my minor league deal scrap heap has given two pretty good starts for the Milwaukee Brewers. One of them against the Toronto Blue Jays. You don't have to, a guy doesn't have to be a long-term piece. He can just kind of fill a hole. And at some point the Jays are going to need a sixth starter, which they don't have a triple A. Now, part of this also requires police act to be down for that move and, and not get a major league offer somewhere else. We'll see how all that shakes out. But because I'd been asked about it, there you go. It's at least uh, worth checking in and trying to figure out why he can't miss bats anymore, or at least hasn't over the last little bit. A couple other minor updates before we get to Doug Fox on the prospect side. Uh, If you are looking at some of the Blue Jays who are on the way back, Santiago Espinal has played four games now at uh, single A Dunedin. He's four for 13. I'd imagine he is, you know, maybe they get him into a a triple A game or two as well. We'll talk to Arden about that too, but it seems like he's getting pretty close for rehab games is a, is a nice little chunk there for Espinal. Maybe they extended a little longer because he hadn't been playing every day and you want to get that bat back. Um, But either way, he continues to progress. Danny Jansen was hitting off of a tee this weekend. Zach pop has made two rehab outings with Dunedin uh, striking out one over two innings and not allowing a hit. Although he did walk a guy and hit a batter. Um, and if it was, if he hit a batter with that kind of heavy 98 mile an hour sinker, I'm trying to picture that like coming in on your toes or, or your knee or something like that. Not, not nice, not nice at all. Um, we'll talk to part of, part of why I want to talk to Arden about the bullpen hierarchy now and, and how it all shakes out is because the Jays will also have a decision to make when Zach pops ready to go. Someone will have to come out of this bullpen or Zach pop himself will have to be optioned to triple a Mitch white is in triple a working on his rehab assignment. Probably not the best sign for his chances of having a rotation spot at any point is uh, he got moved to the triple a bullpen, just a one inning relief appearance uh, over the weekend. Not great there. 
again, Jay Jackson with the team at least one more day because Chris Bassett's on the paternity list. It's a lot of positives from the weekend. Um, this is not a positive, but if you are someone who's standings, who is a standings watcher, um, you may have seen Aaron judge run into a wall over the weekend and break through that wall. Like uh, Roman Reigns spearing someone through the, the barricade or something like that. It sounds like he could hit the IL with the toe injury from that. Nestor Cortez is also hitting the IL. So the Yankees are the, the next team right in front of the Toronto blue Jays. Um, that is worth monitoring. Um, if not, I mean, obviously you always have to be a little careful karmically about looking at, uh, looking at other, uh, other teams, injuries and things like that. But, um, yeah, the, the standings could get closer if the Jays keep it rolling here, but the Astros are a tough one. Um, today is opening day in the Florida complex league. So that means there's going to, there are going to be even more minor leaguers playing around the blue Jays system, even more minor leaguers to keep up with. Monday is always a good day to check in on the farm system because the farms are off and you probably weren't, you know, box score hopping on the weekend. So let's do that. We'll take a break. We'll ask Doug Fox of future Blue Jays if Aurelvis Martinez, despite having a batting average under 200, every other indicator is moving in the right direction and he is once again one of the best power hitters in the minor leagues. Is the 22-year-old ready for a bump to AAA even with the sub-200 batting average? We'll ask Doug Fox about that. We'll ask him about all your favorite prospects. Uh, next, as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Breaking down the top stories in hockey and Elliot Friedman every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's uh maybe you don't think you need to look at the farm system after a 7 and 2 stretch because everything's perfect. Who needs uh, a minor leaguer? Well, guess what? Trade deadlines around the corner. Someone's going to get hurt sooner or later. Alec Manoa's on the hill tonight. Uh, you may want to know and keep a close eye on what's going on down on the farm. If that describes you, you should have futureBlueJays.com bookmarked. Pretty much your A1 site for keeping up with the prospects of the Toronto Blue Jays system. Uh, you could also just follow Doug Fox at DMFox705 on Twitter. Doug Fox joins us now for the first time this year. Uh, Jays Talk 2022 regular. Doug Fox, you, you changed the Twitter handle, man. It was so much easier to just point people to future Blue Jays. What are you doing to me? I'm so sorry, Blake, but but thanks for having me, and happy short season opening day to you and anybody else who celebrates. I set it up before the break that 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 is going on. So why tell tell us why that's a big deal? Obviously, Major League Baseball has um, restricted over the last couple of years the number of minor league teams you can have at a certain time, and as much as I think that that is not a very uh, nice or fair thing if teams want to spend more on their minor league systems they should be allowed to uh in my opinion but it's a it's a pretty big day and it gets us an eye on a lot more guys um who you know what type of guy does this kind of apply to where does this fall in terms of importance on the minor league calendar for you uh it's it's from a distance and it's difficult to follow because of course there's no 
There's no media coverage. There's no streaming games. I've even had uh, people in the Blue Jays organization say, don't worry about going to watch these games because they're a little bit painful to watch because they happen at the hottest part of the day. And it can be some sloppy baseball because mm. we're talking about kids. Uh, for the, the Dominican League, it's always fun to watch. Uh, the top guys like Emmanuel Bonilla is going to make his debut this year there. And then every once in a while, you get a guy that you've never heard of before, like a Rafael Sanchez, who, who kind of comes out of nowhere. And then we get to see them stateside the next year. So it's really, to me, it's, it's baseball at its, at its purest, most, most grassroots form. And it's, it's like a continent away, of course, because it's such a, a media black hole. Yeah, the media black hole forces us to at least a little bit scout by the stat line, which uh, obviously you're not supposed to do, but it's all the information we have from afar. So if a guy's hitting a lot of home runs or having a nice little strikeout the walk rate, uh, that's all we can kind of take from it for the time being. If you were scouting by the stat line, Doug, you might not be all that impressed with Aralvis Martinez's 2023 so far. Even though he's just 22, he is repeating double A. He has a 192 batting average. Uh, yes, the power's there. Absolutely. He's, you know, top 10 in all of minor league baseball and home runs, and he leads the Blue Jays organization by far with 15. But if you just looked at, you know, the baseball card stats, you might think, man, this guy is the same guy as last year, maybe even taking a step back when you look at that batting average. Why would that be incorrect with Aralvis Martinez so far this year? Uh, well, first of all, I think I think we might be looking at a historic line uh, from Aralvis this year. He's, he's uh, hitting, he's below 200, but he's slugging close to 600. And, and you just don't see that. And I guess it just reinforces the notion that batting average can be very misleading because, of course, it, it assumes all hits have equal value, uh, and they certainly don't. Uh, what's encouraging about Aurelvis this year is he's finally starting to walk more and strike out a little bit less. He's still uh, he's still seeing a pretty heavy diet like he was last year of, of breaking stuff on the outer half, fastballs on the inner half, and he's still learning to lay off the pitches that he can't put his barrel on. He's still largely a mistake hitter, but he walked 15 times in May, which is, which is certainly a step in the right direction. And, you know, in hindsight, I know I've talked with, with Blue Jays farm director, Joe Sclafani about this, and I, I can't help but wonder if the Blue Jays just pushed things a little bit too too much last year with, with Aurelvis. He'd only had a couple of weeks in Vancouver at high A ball, and he missed some time with COVID while he was there. And that still uh, earned him an aggressive promotion in New Hampshire last year, partially because Leo Jimenez behind him, another shortstop, needed a place to play. But I, I can't help but wonder if Aurelvis had spent the first six weeks back in high A last year. If we might have seen a different story, but he's still... He's still so young, and he's still very much, at least at the plate, he's still very much uh, a work in, in progress. His defense, that's a story for another time. <laughs> so if anyone hasn't been keeping up, despite the 192 batting average, some real gains for Aurelvis Martinez, as you just laid out. The walk rate is significantly higher than it's been at any other point in the minors. The strikeout rate down to its lowest since he was in rookie ball in 2019. So in addition to the power, uh, you're seeing some signs of real growth and maturity at the plate. I would also say this. He has the lowest batting average on balls in play, not for the New Hampshire yeah. Fisher Cats, not for double A, for the entire affiliated minor leagues among qualified hitters this year. He has by far the worst batting average on balls in play. I would maybe understand it if he was a fly ball only hitter who ran like you or I might, Doug, uh, but there's got to be a good amount of noise there, right? Well, he's still very pull happy. 
And I think that makes him a little bit easier to defend as a result. And, and again, as he gets as he gets more experience, as he learns to, to lay off those pitches that he can't barrel up necessarily, or at least learns to go the other way with him and stop trying to pull everything, then I think you'll see that, that BABIP go up. But, yeah, I noticed that this morning. It's funny that you mentioned that. And I, I, I think that just his tendency still to, to pull the ball is, is largely responsible for that. Yeah, he does. He pulls the ball about 53% of the time, and you combine that with a fly ball rate that's about 50%. And the fly ball rate's a, a feature, not a bug, right? Like we've talked about Alejandro Kirk not getting enough lift or, or Vlad struggles being tied to, you know, when his ground ball rate goes up. Aravos Martinez is very, very capable of pulling the ball and pulling it in the air. So uh, that's a plus. You mentioned the defense and said it's a story for another day, but I'm going to ask you about it as a story for today. He is splitting his time shortstop and third base down there. Um, you know, all we really have to go off of in, in the minor leagues is is errors where he's made uh, 10 of them so far across those two positions in just 44 games. Um, are you are you not liking what you're seeing there? Quite frankly, no. Uh, he's a third baseman. He has the arm strength. He's not going to make anybody forget about Matt Chapman uh, one day. I, I just I don't see him as a, as a big league shortstop. And I think uh, one of the reasons New Hampshire has been doing fairly well of late is Leo Jimenez is, is slowly kind of taking over the majority of reps at shortstop, and he is a solid uh, potential future big league shortstop. Barrelvis has incredible athleticism, but uh, he's still his instincts. Uh, saw him the other night on a double play ball um, where he got the ball at short, stepped on second, and would have been advised just to hang on to the ball in a close game while he threw it away. And he, he, he tends to try to make the spectacular play too often and and i think it just comes down to to instinct and and a few other things but long term he's definitely not a shortstop and probably not a glove gold candidate either you mentioned leo jimenez there uh he's a name maybe people are familiar with because due to rule five stuff he's been on the 40 man uh for a little bit a little while now um he's someone who you know not a lot of power there but he doesn't strike out a ton do you think the bat would play enough for him to like like does he have a fringy major league future, even if it's as kind of a, a glove first utility piece. Uh, yeah, I think he does. He's, he's, I don't think he's ever taken a rep in the outfield. So he's not a multi-position uh, kind of guy. He is a guy when the Blue Jays signed him uh, six years ago, Andrew Tenish, there, the VP of international operations told me right there. And then he thought that Jimenez, if you could ask a, a guy they've signed, who could be a big league shortstop, who could play big league shortstop. Then he, he said Jimenez could, and he's not a spectacular defender by any means, but he is certainly a steady defender. But the question will be, yes, will will he hit enough? And there's not a lot to suggest that he's going to be anything other than maybe a bottom of the order guy, maybe get on base, use his speed to be a, a table setter. But he certainly would solidify any team's uh, shortstop defense. So that double A team that we're talking about that Arelvis Martinez and Leo Jimenez are splitting time on is probably the most interesting team, at least, you know, scanning through the box scores every day there there, because there are a couple other names uh, I want to ask you about from that team, including Rainer Nunez, who just got there. He was kind of a big story in in training camp. Arden Zwelling wrote a piece, you know, these big exit velocities, a guy who'd added a lot of size. Uh, He was doing enough at high a Vancouver to get a promotion last week. And the, the side benefit of this is we get the, the big boy Peyton Williams bumped up to high a to <laughs> fill in that's six, five, two fifty five at, at first base for Vancouver. Now, um, what, 
earned Nunez that promotion to the double A level and uh, kind of what's next for him in your eyes as you continue to scout his progress? Well, I think as far as what what earned in the promotion, I think it was his season last year. I think it was, he was the rookie of the year in the Dominican Winter League. Uh, And I think it was some maturity. Uh, I had heard rumblings last year from uh, people throughout the system in and and around the organization that I talked to. and And that was a concern. And I think that he's picked things up there and, and he's a kind of guy that just when I think, Oh, I don't think he's a big leaguer. I see holes in his game. I see holes in his defense. He made a couple of very nice plays all in one inning in a game for New Hampshire last week. And his game just, just continues to seem to come along. And, you know, there is a guy already in Toronto playing first base that will be very yeah. tough to dislodge. But uh, Nunez is, is looking at, uh, I, I think he's a triple A guy, his next step. And, you know, whether that's this year, probably more next year, but he's a guy certainly to keep an eye on. He is, and he is, as you say, a large human being. And then there's Peyton Williams of Vancouver who covers a lot of ground just from his physical presence alone. Yeah, it's 6'5", 255. That's a, a huge player at any position, but uh, especially on the base there at, yeah. at first base. And the Jays, you know, obviously a first base slash DH prospect is easier to find a, a bat with, uh, but it does tend to be where the most excitement is. Rainer Nunez, Peyton Williams, um, Spencer Horwitz at AAA, of course, waiting for, you know, some sort of major league opportunity to open up. Um, another name at AA, he hasn't been playing first base, but initially the thought with Damiano Palmetto was that yeah he's really athletic and he's got a decent arm but the footwork and the instincts weren't necessarily good enough at third base baseball america i remember as he was coming up thought his long-term position was at first base the walk rate and the power speak for themselves there has palmegiani improved enough defensively you think to to change the thinking about his long-term position the 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 short answer is slightly uh he's getting getting lots of reps. Aureldas spills them uh, over there, obviously, and they want to get Aureldas some time there. But, you know, seeing seeing New Hampshire play a couple of times a week, I'm seeing a guy who's becoming, I think, uh, just better at the routine plays, which is which is always what you want a guy to make. Um, Long term, is, is he, again, is he an elite defender? Probably not, but he's certainly seeing, he's showing signs of improvement. And it just, it goes back to what Branch Rickey used to say. He used to hold these tryout camps all over the Southwest United States, and he would cut anybody who couldn't run uh, a 60 yard dash uh, under seven seconds. And because he believes speed was the most important factor in, in offense and defense. And when it came to defense and somebody asked him, what about fielding? He said, well, we can always teach them how to field. And I think there's, there's a case with uh, Paul Maggiani. He's out with the coach every coaches every day. He's taking his reps. So there certainly has been some improvement there. Is it big league improvement uh, potential? That's still difficult to say. All right. So that's uh yeah, that's, Interesting. I, I don't know. There are just so many first base. I get a little worried when when guys get the ah, maybe he has to move the first base tag. But at least with him, you know, maybe there's enough athleticism for a corner outfield or something like that as well. He certainly yeah. seems to think from from hearing him in interviews that he'll be able to stick at third base. Uh, last one from double a oh no it's not i have i have this is it this is the new hampshire fisher cats hit i i guess sorry um but this is where a lot of the guys in the system and i think this is actually an interesting thing doug in that there's been a lot of talk about how triple a doesn't have very much major league ready support if the blue jays need to go down there for a bullpen arm or especially for a starter even if you know when kiermeyer was banged up there for a little bit and we're talking about names like cam eden or, or trying to do the jordan luplau thing again um when you see the double A team as well stocked as it is with more guys 
getting promoted to that level in, in the last little bit here, including the, the guy we're going to talk about in a second, Chad Dallas. What does that say you say to you about the state of the farm system and the org depth in general? Are we just like, is it just a little too early for this particular core group or, or is there something else going into the lower levels being so much better stocked than the triple the A level? Well, I think you're seeing the guys uh, who double A, triple A, or somewhere in between. These are the guys who are most impacted by losing a season of competition in 2020. And I, I really think as, uh, you know, as we get further away from COVID and look back, we're really going to see. I think that's one of the reasons why there's such a huge gap even still between MLB and AAA. So I think you're seeing that those guys were just at a prime point in their development and they didn't have that year of experience. And you're just, you're not going to see guys uh, jumping from AA to the big leagues like you, like you once did. Maybe in a couple of seasons we'll see that. Um, but I think that's I think that's really the case in in this situation. You know, it's any team can tank. Any team can lose a hundred games for a couple years in a row and get the get the top top picks. Now, of course, we have the lottery system, but they get the the added bonus pool money for the international free agents for as long as we still have that system in place. Kind of rebuilding or tool, tooling up your system on the fly is, is difficult, and the Blue Jays are, I think are kind of reflecting that. They're not getting the high picks. They're not necessarily getting the huge, the largest bonus pool, so they can't go out necessarily and get the top guys. So they've got to really be more acute with their scouting and, and development and do what they can with the guys they do get. And then, you know, no short season league or fewer short season leagues, uh, a hindrance there as well. And maybe we would have seen Chad Dallas in 2021 uh, late in the minor league system had there been more of those. But instead, we had to wait for last year. He immediately debuts at high A. Not a unbelievable season, but not a bad start, especially for a guy who was a fourth round draft pick. And we've now seen him to start this year, repeat at high A, only go five starts. And they're like, look, this is this guy is way more advanced than last year. Let's get him up to double A. He did have a bit of a a bump in the road, his last start out, but he's made a couple good starts at double A as well. I know Chad Dallas is a guy you've tweeted about a bunch. Uh, what do you like about the kind of undersized righty? I love that he's a character, uh, which probably couldn't be first and foremost. Um, when he was with Vancouver, the Seas do a, a mic'd up uh, kind of thing that you can find on Twitter, and he's a very funny individual. Uh, what I like about him is that he, he you know, I, I know he didn't take returning to Vancouver terribly well. He won not the pitcher starts, which pitchers wins at any level or the be all and end all, but he won his very first start. I think it was April 13th of last year. He didn't win another game. He went 23 starts until late April of this year before he had won another. He saw other guys go ahead of him. And I think especially last year, he I think he had some difficulties just handling all of that from a maturity standpoint. But I think he entered this year with a different mindset. And, you know, pitchers from a very young age are taught about the importance of fastball command and everything comes from the fastball. Uh, you know, you want young arms throwing, breaking stuff until they become teenagers. And I think baseball is slowly changing, changing their viewpoint on that because some guys, once they start to learn a breaking pitch, they have a better feel for breaking pitches and their ability to spin them and locate them. And so it's not necessarily for some guys, everything comes off the fastball. And I think Dallas is, is one of those guys. It, it doesn't necessarily make sense to go with the fastball if it's not your best pitch. And he's very fortunate that he has two good breaking pitches that he can throw in any count 
and he can throw for strikes or he can throw for chases. And I, I really like his approach to pitching. He doesn't throw terribly hard, like 93, 94 uh, in the zone and maybe 95, 96 to try to get some chases outside of it. But there's always the thought of either that, that sharp downer of a curveball or that snappy slider that he has it's in the back of hitters' heads. And it's just been fun to see. You know, it's, it's always fun to see when a guy figures things out. And this is a guy who is certainly figuring things out. Possibly not anything more than a mid-rotation starter one day. But, man, he's he's been probably next to Adam Kloppenstein. He has been the best starter in the system this season with Ricky Tiedemann out for who knows how long. Yeah, and Kloppenstein is a guy that admitted you know, when we see the numbers, when I talk to scouting people, by the end of last year, I was fairly out on it. It had been a minute, you know, he was a 2018 draft pick. He really wasn't striking a lot of guys out anymore. And then lo and behold, uh, you don't give up on pitching prospects when they're 22. He now leads the system in strikeouts so far this year by far. Uh, what's what's changed for Kloffenstein? I, I spoke with him last week, and you know, you, and I've spoken to people in the organization. And you know, when when you see guy uh, kind of break through like this, you you think, oh wow, what was the adjustment that he made? He didn't really make any. That's that's kind of the consensus. Uh, I think he's just his fastball command has been better. I think he's always been fairly good. Uh, last year, especially, he just seemed to lose the strike zone. In, in an inning and he, his pitch count would go up and then he's out of the game. And now you can, you can rely on him to pitch six innings, um, 90 plus pitches, just about every start out, even when he doesn't have his best stuff. And it's, so I think it probably speaks to maturity. I think it speaks a little bit to, he's rediscovered some of his velocity on his fastball. Again, his four seamer more of a chase pitch than anything else. But this is a guy who has been pounding the strike zone, and I think that has been the uh, I think the biggest uh, aspect of the success this year. He's a guy. He's a big guy, and he could potentially just eat up a lot of innings at the back of somebody's rotation one day. So that's I mean, hey, that's a that's a great step forward for a guy who looked like he was on the the fringes of you know no longer being a guy or making a move to the bullpen at some point. That's a big step forward. Um, we we. We had talked about a couple of guys who got the bump from high A to double A recently or from low A to high A. And this is, you know, kind of the the time of year. You've got a little bit of time. You you can, uh, you know, check in on where guys are at. It's not a small sample, things like that. But, Doug, we have a question in the text line from Kevin in Toronto. And, and you and I touch on this a little bit on, on the hitter side. So maybe think more from a, a pitcher standpoint. But Kevin, I, Kevin wants to know what goes into calling up prospects. So I, I'm assuming he means, you know, bumping them up to the next level. So if you look at a cloth and scene at double a, or, you know, when we hit the point in the year where Brandon Barriera ha- has a bit of a sample with Dunedin, what are the kinds of things that you or an organization looks for beyond just the numbers to say, Hey, this pitcher's ready for the next level. Well, I think two parts to that. The first is the process itself, and it's it's generally speaking a consensus decision. You know, it's not the you know it's not uh, Brent Lavalley, the manager of Vancouver, saying, "Hey, Rainer's ready to go up to the next level." No, it's it's a group consensus. It's consensus. It's probably some Zoom meetings or maybe conference calls or however they communicate it. But it's certainly the whole farm department is in. There's a great deal of documentation that goes into it as well. You know, there are reports players and coaches or managers and coaches have to fill out after every game. So I think that that that's how the decision is arrived at, certainly by the organization. What do they look for? There's certainly, it's, it's not just the on-field performance. Obviously, that's a huge part of it, but it's what what is their routine like? Uh, between games, what is the routine like on game day? What are they like as a teammate? What is the maturity like? 
can they handle uh, the next level where there's possibly going to be some failure because a little bit of adversity is not a bad thing for a prospect necessarily. So I think those are all the things that go into it. So a lot of it is certainly beyond the stat line or beyond even what we can watch on MILB.TV. That's a great point, Doug. And, you know, that's part of why you're, uh, your newsletter is so valuable and that you do have these conversations in addition to watching a lot of these games, talk to people in New York, talk to the players themselves. Um, and, you know, the weekly newsletter is kind of indispensable for Blue Jays fans who want to keep an eye on the farm system. And they can find that at dmfox.substack.com. They can find you at dmfox705 on Twitter. Mr. Future Blue Jays. Uh, Doug Fox, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Blake, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Doug Fox. Future Blue Jays. Uh, you can check out his Substack, the Future Blue Jays newsletter at dmfox.substack.com. His latest uh, from last week, by the way, uh, included an update to his personal top 30 prospects in the system. And yeah, we don't have an update on Ricky Tiedemann or Addison Barger, but they rank high uh, despite not playing for the last month or so. Addison Barger, by the way, uh, sounds like he's slowly ramping up activities after, you know, five weeks down, but uh not really uh, an update on him or on Ricky Tiedemann, which is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's troubling because there's no update and they're not playing. But with the new paradigm where there is a lot of, um, you know, getting guys work at the complex in Dunedin and, you know, we even saw Tiedemann last year, not shut down, but go on one of those developmental stints instead of the IL to, to work on some stuff. Who knows what they're up to and they don't have to, uh, they don't have to update us at all if they don't want. We'll see if Arden at 11 o'clock knows anything about the status of those two guys. A couple more questions in the text line. Brian in Toronto asks about uh, potential bench strength additions uh, because the bench is fairly weak right now. That much I agree with Brian. Uh, he mentions Jesus Aguilar or Cesare Hernandez. Um, both of those guys have been released. With Aguilar, I mean, he's uh, he was bad with Oakland. You know how bad you have to be for the Oakland athletics to cut you right now. They want to lose games. Um, he, but again, Aguilar is a guy that hits right-handed and is only two seasons removed from being uh, fairly effective. There's obviously a lot of power in that bat. Um, the, you know, the one of the things that Aguilar did really well in his peak seasons, but he was that he didn't strike out a lot for a big power guy. That's kind of gone uh, the other way over the, the more recent seasons. The other issue with Aguilar is that, um, I don't know. You could try to put him at third base. Miami did that last year and a little bit in, in 2021. I don't know if you want to do that anymore. Um, he's a guy without a position. So unless a, a Brandon Belt or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. were to need some IL time, um, you know, I don't know. The way they use their bench, we haven't seen Ernie Clement in forever and have barely ever seen Nathan Lucas. It's not like you can't justify having a pinch hitting specialist uh, on the bench there. Cesar Hernandez. Uh, opted out of a minor league deal that he had with the the Mariners over the weekend. This is that time of year. You're seeing a lot of that uh, around baseball right now. Um, he was hitting fairly well for Seattle's AAA team, just a monster walk rate that to me says, well, this guy's 33 and he's not going to let AAA pitchers uh, throw him junk and nibble around the the strike zone. So that's that's good. The, the approach is still there. Um, and he obviously has a, a little bit more defensive versatility than an Aguilar. He, he's played all three infield positions uh, for Seattle's minor league team this year, as well as center field. Uh, and he's a switch hitter. So that's one. Hey, 
kick the tires on it. See, see if, you know, I always wonder with these guys who opt out of their minor league deals uh, at the 60 day mark or the 30 day mark, depending on what their contracts stipulate, you know, are they looking for a guaranteed major league opportunity from someone right now? Are they just looking to get a, a look in a different organization and, and, you know, see where you stand on the depth chart there. It's a, it's a bit of a curious one because if you're Hernandez, you know, I, I almost wonder if, if like these minor league contracts that have an opt out date after a certain number of days, if it might benefit everyone to have a stipulation in there where it, you can opt out. Sure. But you could also like the contract becomes purchasable league wide. So in the NBA, if you're in the G League and you're not one of the NBA team's uh, allotted G League players, anyone can sign you. So someone with Raptors 905 could be playing there and, and killing it. And if they're not a member of the Toronto Raptors, then the Detroit Pistons can reach down and be like, that guy's ours. We're, we're going to sign him. Um, and of course, that player gets his money and things like that. So there's not really a, a labor component there to worry about. I do wonder if some of these veteran deals could have something like that where, yeah, by the way, after 30 days, I don't have to opt out. I can keep playing for your minor league system. But if someone wants to sign me, I'm out of here. Uh, Eddie in Fort Erie says he's a standings watcher as far as the wild card goes. And you got to win these two series against the Astros and the Twins. That'll have the cards stacked in their favor. Um, do I agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, you've got to take advantage of the schedule that you, that you have right now. And the Astros are very, very good, but you don't get to play the Yankees for a long time to catch up with them. You don't get to play. I mean, you have two against the two sets against the Orioles in in the next little bit, um, but you don't get to play the Rays for a really long time to make those games up. So I agree. You have to take advantage of these non AL East opponents, even if they are like the Houston Astros, very, very good. And like the Minnesota twins, very, very, eh, um, yeah, you got to take it. If you could take three of four against the Astros and two of three against the twins and keep on rolling with these series wins against non-divisional opponents, that's about the only thing that can make you feel good. Cause you can't have those AL East games back. Of course. Um, you know, and we kind of say sometimes in the American league East, if you can go 500 in the division and you take care of your business elsewhere, you, you know, that's, that's what determines your standings ultimately the Jays have kind of got off to the slow start on the finish 500 in your division part a really slow start. So yeah, the impetus is on them now to perform even better outside of the division, this series and the three against Minnesota on the weekend, seven games at home. Uh, it does feel like a pretty big week and should be some fun down at the ballpark for sure. We're going to take a break and tag in Arden's well, and he's going to join us in the studio for the next hour. Uh, we'll go through the weekend. Arden was down there in New York and we'll set this Astro series up as Jays talk plus continues on sports at 590, the fan and sports at 360. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptors Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A little riffs from a band called Losers, which the Blue Jays were not all weekend. They win all three in New York, down in New York. And now beside me is Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. How are you, man? How's New York? Good morning. It was good. It was yeah. Good. I'm not a big New York guy, okay. but uh, it was good. Weekend <laughs> back on the, the writing side. We got three very good game day stories out of you. Not gamers, but very deep in depth, uh, you know, 
the Brios thing, the Bassett kid thing, the Vlad coming around, the Varsho ALS thing, no shortage of, and the Kikuchi Senga kind of friendship slash rivalry, no shortage of topics this weekend. Um, as I do, I'm going to start inside baseball and like, or inside baseball media. And like, what is the weekend like for you switching back to, because a lot of the travel you've done this year, you've been doing the sideline reporting and, and you know, when you're not on the road, you do blue Jay central here or whatever the switch back to, Hey, I'm, I'm a writer for the whole weekend. How is that? Yeah. And one more coming today on George Springer that nice. may or may not be up at this point. It's not as of nine 30 this morning. <laughs> so. I haven't checked my email in a little bit, but uh, yeah, you, you know, rusty, definitely uh, felt rusty on the blue Jay central desk last week, honestly, with, with Jamie and then hopping over to back to writing again, like, you know how it is with writing. If you're doing it consistently and regularly, kind of multiple times a week, it's easier. But then when I kind of step away from it for a month and have to pick that up back up again, uh, the words don't come as easily as they once did. We were just talking about me getting back in the gym. And same thing, right? <laughs> as there's a there's a muscle memory uh, to it as well. So you did get to go deep on a couple of these things, and I think you're underselling the uh, I think you're underselling yourself a little bit with the the rust. I didn't notice any, um, but there was a lot to sort through this weekend um, from a kind of energy and emotion around the team standpoint did, does, did this one stand out to you with the the Bassett stuff the Varsho stuff kind of a lot going on for this team there was a lot going on behind the scenes but I thought like what what I really take away from this series honestly was like a lot of discipline and poise and patience just in game in terms of hitting I really thought that this lineup executed some really good game plans uh particularly against Senga yesterday in really eliminating that ghost fork from his repertoire and the ability ahead. to lay off so many of those is uh like those are close right like the the, the whole kevin gosman thing is you know they're going to be outside of the zone but on their way in they look so close before they duck out of there and, and i think that the stat in your story was what the jays only swung at four of the 14 ghost forks he threw they did and they drove him from the game on ghost forks matt chapman hit one for a double uh only the second extra base hit off a ghost fork this year that Senga has given up two doubles. That's it. So Chapman and some pretty rarefied air. And then Whit Merrifield's walk, which was Senga's last plate appearance of the game, final two pitches he took in a two-strike count were ghost forks. And they were, like, not ones that Senga was bouncing. They were the ones that come in and look, strike, 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 ball. And Whit Merrifield laid off them and took them. They like I thought the Blue Jays made a really good adjustment to a guy that they hadn't seen before, a guy whose pitch has been one of the best in baseball this year, talking to a couple players after the game about it, they were telling me, like, it looks like, and no pitch actually goes up, but it looks like it's going up before it drops down. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi was describing it to me that way as well. Obviously, like, that's not how gravity works, but just <laughs> visually, that's how it appears to you as as a hitter. So it's a really difficult pitch to lay off of. It's really, like, it's it's a split between a split and a fork ball. I don't know if you want to like classify it as a split, but if you do, it's right up there with Kevin Gosman's in terms of just one of the toughest not to chase. And the Blue Jays did a really good job of not chasing it. And that, like the optics of it rising is like, okay, and that's usually a tell that that sign that it feels like or looks like it's rising is your tell that it's a fastball, right? Because the the spin on a fastball is a little different. And the you know there are certain pitcher types at least that throw the kind of high spin rising fastball. So I'd imagine there's a component of um, like it also helps 
mask that it's the ghost fork out of his hand because it looks like the movement profile of it probably looks like a fastball on its way out. And then he's also got a cutter and a sweeper and like he's also living in the mid 90s. Like he's just a really he's a handful, right? <laughs> and look, that's his his worst start of the year against the Blue Jays mm-hmm. yesterday. Like that's the worst start he's had. He's been remarkable. Does some of that have to do with him pitching on 4 days rest for the first time in his life? perhaps right he's never done that before and talking to kikuchi a little bit about himself having made that adjustment coming over from japan where it's a once a week schedule and you you know they have a six-man rotation and then every monday everybody is just every it's an off day minor league style yeah exactly across the league uh it's an adjustment and kikuchi you know was talking about going through that and how that process took him the greater part of an entire season to learn how to do it so i'm sure that sango was battling that a little bit, but I, I really do think the Blue Jays just were very patient and discerning and disciplined all weekend against Verlander, too. Like, that was vintage Verlander, peak Verlander, and they got his pitch count up early. And he was frustrated at times. Got him out after six. So on, on a day that Verlander was using, like, that he had the stuff that he had to get him out after six, and he still went 117 pitches, I just thought the Blue Jays did a really good job against him as well and then obviously got into the, the Mets bullpen later on in that game with, with uh, I guess it was Varsho getting the, uh, the mm-hmm. homer in that, on that day. Yeah, uh, it was, uh, yeah. The Verlander start, by the way, is, and again, only six innings, that was the highest pitch count in baseball this year. Topped Kevin Gosman's uh, 115 twice. Dude, that sixth inning from, like, I know this isn't Justin Verlander plus, but, like, that sixth inning from Verlander was one of the coolest things that I have seen live in a long time. He threw seven of his eight hardest pitches on the day in that sixth inning. Like, it's crazy what he does. I know that's his thing, right? Talking to George Springer about it after the game, he was like, that's just Justin Verlander. Like, that's just what he does. You expect that coming in. But I'm sorry, 40, yeah. 40 year old man, like 3,200 innings on the resume uh, coming off Tommy John two years ago. And he's out here throwing 96, finding his hardest pitches of the game in the sixth inning with the bases loaded to a left handed hitter, like just attacking Dalton Varsho with 96 at that point in his start. I mean, that type of intensity, that type of compete level at his stage of his career like that's why that guy is first ballot Hall of Famer. That that was it was unbelievable, amazing to watch. This is maybe a, an unfair question to ask because how would it have come up or whatever? And you know we know pitchers and their schedules and things like that. But I know that Manoa has talked in the past about trying to pick the brain of guys like that. Um, do you think that's some? I I know that the situations are not similar and Mano and Verlander, you know, you have to go back to like 2008 for the last time he had like a bad season. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Could you see Manoa ha- having tried to use that opportunity to soak up a little bit or, or touch base with a guy that I, I think we've seen him pal around with at the all-star game and stuff like that. Yeah. was that, yeah, that was Verlander. He was talking yeah. to at the all-star game. I didn't see them interacting personally. I know George caught up with him because mm-hmm. like Springer and Verlander go back uh to houston days and they're actually really tight off the field so i don't know that uh that manoa talked to him at all but um you know i'm if he was watching i don't know how much you can pick up (laughs) via just watching what justin verlander was doing but like who else who else in today's era put aside like granky verlander who else is going to throw three thousand innings let alone still be out there at 40 uh competing at that level and finding 96 and throwing as hard as he has all night at the end of a 117-pitch outing 
Blake. No, like it's, it's crazy. Nobody. It's it's ridiculous. And just watch there. Your lid is not on tight on That's, your cup. I was like, so. I just spilled coffee all over myself, and I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. So it's not there all the go. way on. There you go. Um, that was worrying me the whole time you were talking. <laughs> you see me looking for it? Yeah. Too? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got it. We. That's this the adjustment is, we need uh, to make. Fresh off a flight, Arden yeah. just can't even get his uh, his lid. On I mean, his you cup. didn't you didn't do the lid. No, that's fair. Yeah. We'll blame um, Azo for that one. Yeah. The Verlander thing, though, like I do wonder, it's not this simple with Manoa. Obviously, there's a ton going on with Manoa right now. But I do wonder if like seeing a guy that he's like not idolized, but like certainly looked up to on his way up and like seeing that level of competitor on the mound and that level of fire. Like, I do wonder if that f- at least fires Manoa up for a start like today, where last time out we saw him or heard him really. It was the first time we've ever kind of heard him not enjoying the process and sounding like he's lost some confidence and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. Where are you at on, on Manoa? We'll get back to the weekend, but since yeah. we're on the, the Manoa topic, uh, heading into tonight, um, you know, they just got a really good turn through the rotation for, from everyone. But, man, it, it doesn't sound like he's in the best of head spaces off that last start. He's got to find little wins each time out. Little incremental gains. Because, like, he's not going to be 2022 Alec Manoa suddenly. Like, it's right. not just going to turn on a dime like that. He has to find a little thing in each start. So is it, okay, I'm gonna, my, I've am my i got a, an inch back on my slider in this outing. And maybe I only go five and I give up three and I'm not that happy about it. And the leash is shorter on me now. They don't trust me as much. But I made that gain on my slider. I can carry that forward and continue building. Or maybe it's, hey, my two-seamer was like more consistently located on the edges or I, I went back into righties front hip with that thing and it was effective and I got a couple jam shots off of it. Like he's got to find that little thing in each start because you're not going to, he's, he's so deep in the hole right now with mm-hmm. this season. You're not going to find everything all at once. And I know that people at the Blue Jays have been talking to him about that, like, Chris Bassett talked to him about that after his outing last time out. Shai Davidi had it in, in his piece, and he said, like, just find the wins. You did good things today, even though it the outing didn't go great and you walked too many and you were pulled after four innings when your pitch count wasn't that high. Like, f- forget all that. Like, find the win. Find the plus and carry that forward. That's how you get out of this thing, step by step, incrementally. It's not going to happen all at once. No, and, uh, you know, Bassett, it's great for him to be able to pick that brain. And then, you know, watching Jose Barrios have gone through last year and then the first couple starts this year and what he's been able to do. Um, He's another guy you wrote about on on the weekend. La Magina is back. (laughs) Um, What are you liking from Barrios right now? And just, I guess, you know, this is... 10 starts in a row of going a certain length and an ERA under three over that stretch of time. This is arguably the best 10 game stretch he's had back to like his early Minnesota days. Um, what has clicked for, for Jose Brios? Is it just finding those little wins and then eventually stacking them on top of each other? That was part of it last year and throughout the off season as well. People you talk to with the blue Jays keep mentioning his off season and what he did in Dunedin. He was at the the player development complex down there throughout the, the winter. He didn't spend as much time in Puerto Rico as he, typically has and people keep referring back to that i know the immediate results at the world baseball classic and his first couple of of outings um you know weren't spectacular but that does appear to be where the foundation of a lot of this stuff was built um and you, you look at the way he pitches now even just mechanically it looks so different from uh from his minnesota days like the blue jays have done a lot of work with him and they really feel like they've found something sustainable going forward that allows him to maintain that release point, 
find his command of both fastballs, not tip, which is a big one with him. And the other thing is... is yeah, with, what was the thing on the weekend? The, the shaky and dancing to Kirk? Well, yeah, so that was the twins were relaying signs from second base, or at least talking to Jose, like he yeah. was convinced that they were relaying signs from second base. I sometimes wonder if runners on second do stuff like that just to get in the pitcher's head. I thought, I think there was an instance where it was Brandon Nimmo in that start where it was like Nim, he wasn't doing anything until Barrios looked. Yeah. And I like, I rewound it a couple times. I'm like, is he doing anything or is he just messing with him? I do I've, wonder. I've talked to guys who have told me like they will do stuff like that just to get in a pitcher's head, yeah. even if they aren't relaying signs. But Jose really did think the Mets were relaying signs. I mean, enough like, that he was like, and it wasn't a complaining thing. It was like a very loud letting Kirk know yeah. <laughs> from the mound kind of thing. It no, was, he, it was pretty amusing. He talked about making an adjustment yeah. with that after the game. So I'm sure they changed up their signs or Kirk started setting up later or something. The outing went well. The The big thing for me as well is just the, the way he's using his breaking ball right now. And he threw his slurve. Like it was his primary pitch mm-hmm. um, on Saturday was that outing, right? Yeah. And I mean, he led with that pitch. He was throwing early in counts. He's throwing it late in counts. And he's really just fluctuating the velocity on it. Like, he's manipulating mm-hmm. it so well. He was, I, and off the top of my head, anywhere from, I believe, 75 to 85 with it. And just his average on it has been a tick or two slower over recent outings. And that's purposeful. Like, that's something that he's done to get a bit more command of it to make it a bit bigger, to use it a bit more effectively. But if he's going to be able to add and subtract with it in terms of velocity, that's going to allow him to not only land it on the plate for strikes, but also to like make it bigger and a bit more um, devastating to get chase outside the zone as well. So like, that's a huge thing for him and a really cool adjustment he's made. Yeah. And it's, it's tough sometimes. Like we think velocity is always a positive, right? And you know, all else equal, it probably is, but it also means if a pitch is moving faster, that's less time that it has to break. Right. And so if you can throw a slower curveball that maybe has, you call it big, it has yeah. a, a bit more movement to it. And then you throw the, you mix the faster one in there and it gets in on you just a little bit more. It's uh it's one of those things where like, I'm, I'm not, when Kevin Gosman does the I'm varying my fastball velocity thing with a fastball, especially one that doesn't have like an elite movement profile, I'm mostly just like throw your good fastball. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. like I believe I firmly believe if we had enough of a sample, then your bet your good fastball would be way better than your your lesser fastball. But with breaking balls, we do see like it changes the movement profile and maybe you know, again, your ability to locate it or even just something like, hey, the last one came in looking almost the exact same and ducked out of the zone, but this one's not going to move as much because I'm throwing it just a little tighter. Stuff like that, I, I would imagine, adds up. And you mentioned he was throwing it kind of as his primary. It's been his primary on the season now. It's the it's yeah. past the it's past the sinker as his as his primary pitch. He throws it 31% of the time. Um, I look around the league and there are only a handful of uh, guys, Julio Arias and Drew Smiley, I think, are the only two guys that throw, and they're classified as curveballs, not slurs, but who throw that pitch more often as a starter. Like, what do you think the upper limit is on, on how much you could get away with throwing that while still, obviously, he's going to use the change up to lefties and, and you're going to set everything up with your, your four seam or your sinker. But, like, could he push that even higher than, than the 30, 31% he's sitting at now? Or is this kind of... 
the high end for you? I think this is probably as high as he'd want to go okay. because another important thing for him, honestly, is just having a good balance to his pitch mix mm -hmm. as well and not being too predictable with what he's throwing and keeping it in hitters' minds that he's going to throw that two-seamer a bunch and that for lefties especially, he's going to dot that four-seamer and, oh, by the way, a change-up every now and then too. So I think that, like, a good, honestly, a good mix of, like, 30-30-30 with slurve four-seamer, two-seamer, and then mm -hmm. 10 change-up, that feels good to me. Yeah, Maybe and the change-up's probably closer to 20-25 against lefties, yeah. but a little lower against righties. And Yeah, exactly. This is just against everybody. Um, I think that that mix is really important for him as well because he's got to turn lineups over. If you're Jay Jackson and you're facing five hitters, you can spam sliders, right? You can do things like that. But the, the Jose Brios has to get you out different ways and, you know, we talk a lot about the slurve and how important it's been for him, but it really does, at the end of the day, get back to fastball command and to location. Like, that's why there hasn't been quite as much damage this year, although his fastballs have been getting hit hard uh, at times, but he has been operating in better areas of the zone with his heaters this year. And I think that's, that's helping him avoid some of the sort of disastrous outcomes that he experienced last year. And a big part of that is, you know, and obviously these last 10 games, there haven't really been bad outings where he needs to just suck it up and give the Blue Jays length. But a big part of this has been the him being able to do that. Kikuchi even being able to go five more reliably. Obviously Bassett and Gosman are, workhorses like Bassett the days he doesn't have it he could still give you length because he'll just go out there and, and chuck seven different pitches at like 88 and still you know have the rubber arm the Jays weird as it sounds because of Manoa's struggles still to this point lead the league in innings pitched from their starting rotation uh, they have 339.1 the twins have 339.0 so take that Minnesota um, <laughs> it is but it is pretty remarkable that you know, for all, like, I think Manoa has been the biggest talking point of this Blue Jays season, but the Jays have still, as a rotation, gotten more out of their starters than anyone. And, and I wonder, you know, obviously that doesn't mean you have more confidence in your top two or three in a, in a playoff series scenario. But when you look at the value of that over 162, how much do you think that help explains how much better the bullpen's been lately too? Yeah, it's huge because you can now use relievers in positions that you want to in matchups that you're targeting instead of we have to use this guy <laughs> at this point. Like you can just be a lot more purposeful and strategic in how you're deploying the arms that you want to employ um, deploy and then you can put relievers in positions where they're most likely to be successful because you're targeting very specific matchups so there are it all does cascade like people forget the Blue Jays were a postseason team last year won 92 games going pole to pole with Jose Barrios having like a five whatever ERA leading the American League in hits and earned runs allowed mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and for what three and a half months of the season they had Yusei Kikuchi and then replace him with Mitch White right running a crazy walk rate and then Mitch White came over he wasn't the solution and then regularly in late August early September the Blue Jays were running bullpen days that yep. was their fifth starter for a while there was bullpen Trevor Richards opens for what it might it was Mitch White sometimes, right? Yeah. So um it's if you're gonna be getting what you are getting from Gosman, Barrios, and Bassett, which is like well, 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 probably 120 plus um ERA plus from each of those guys. If you say Kikuchi is just gonna be totally serviceable as your number five, you can carry an Alec Manoa figuring it out. Obviously, you would like it to be better. 
but you can, we've seen this just last year. You can carry a guy figuring it out for the entire year, still qualify for the postseason. Yeah, you can. And, and with Manoa, like we've talked about, there aren't a lot of options uh, ready to go. Um, Drew Hutchison opts out of his deal. Not that he was pitching like he was an option anyway. Uh, Zach Thompson, the ERA is down below seven now, at least. <laughs> I, I know I know they're fond of the cutter. last time out, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Casey Lawrence was not. His ERA is almost up as high as Zach Thompson's now. Um, and then even guys like Sozulueta, Thomas Hatch, and now Mitch White are working out of the bullpen at AAA. Mitch White, got, do, do you have anything on that, by the way? The fact that he's now a, a bullpen arm for the Bisons? I don't. When I asked about Mitch, it was after his second start here. The with one the, that did not go well. The Bisons. And what I was told very directly, like, he's feeling good. We're encouraged with the health. The execution needs to be better. Because I was looking for that, well, it's AAA and the defense behind them. It was a weird day, 11 o'clock for his pitch. It was just, no, he's feeling good. He's where he needs to be. The execution needs to be better. So interesting that he's in that role now. The Buffalo Bisons have one quality start all season. They've probably played like, wow. I don't know, 65, 70 games. This, but they played oh. the same amount as the Blue Jays, I'm sure. They have one quality start all season. That's it. Uh, the, the plan right now, honestly, if the Blue Jays needed a spot start, if they needed a long-term option in the rotation, I do think it would be Thompson. But if they needed just like to cover one trip through, like one turn through the rotation, it would be Trevor Richards opening for mm-hmm. Bowden Francis probably. That yeah. would like that would be the solution. And right Francis now. needs a forty-man spot, but he's been pretty. I mean, since he came back, he's been their best option for sure. And yeah, yikes. But Trevor uh, Richards is also in leverage now, so it's a so it's a difficult thing. This I have a table printed out here about the the leverage usage and John Schneider's kind of new bullpen dynamic that I want to save for the second half. Um, just to close out the starting pitching depth thing, because there is a, a new name to the mix that a lot of people have uh, texted in and asked about AJ from Brampton and a couple others ta- texted in. I, I set it up off the top of just don't get too excited about someone else's discard, especially when their ERA is 7.59 in the majors and 7.56 in AAA. Zach Plesac got DFA'd um, by Cleveland. Again, the recent results are really, really ugly and depth is depth and who knows if he'd even sign a a minor league deal somewhere if he'd hold out for a major league opportunity or something like that um could you see the j now that we're at the point of the season where a police act or you know the drew hutchison types who have opted out of their minor league deals in different organizations could we potentially see uh some triple a depth ad here like some kind of nimble maneuvering like police act's still only 28 if he was down for a minor league deal i don't know if he was willing to come in on a non-40 minor league deal, yeah. like I'm sure the Blue Jays would ex- be open to that. <laughs> yeah. they, there's no downside to them. They added somebody else with major league experience on a minor league deal a few weeks ago. Is now at AAA, okay. and I'm blanking on the name. Um, but like he's now in the rotation. Another guy who's been in the big leagues. Like they're they're searching for that absolutely because they the the depth is is razor thin at this moment. Blue Jays the only team in baseball not to use a sixth starter. It's kind of incredible that they've gotten to this point that they haven't even had like a rain out doubleheader situation, right? Like that Rays yeah. Red Sox series over the weekend got all messed up with stuff like that. That they haven't even run into something like that and had to call up the 27th player uh, is somewhat incredible. But how sustainable is that? How, how long can that continue for uh, injuries happen? and underperformance happens and rainouts and bad luck and all kinds of stuff in baseball happens. So the blue Jays are going to need to be prepared for it. Yeah. Well, let's hope. Well, luckily they don't have to be prepared for it this week because 
the games are at home, so you don't have to. There's no potential for a, a rain out here uh, unless it's you know catastrophic weather uh, or something like that. Uh, so they're all right here. They also have the extra bullpen arm uh, for an extra day or two because Chris Bassett's on the paternity list and Jay Jackson. Um, did you get to check in with Jay Jackson at all during over the weekend in New York? Cause I know he was a guy that you thought there was uh, you and the organization, obviously since they, they signed him back, uh, think something's there. He just really hasn't got an opportunity to get into games. Yeah. I just said, Hey, didn't really talk to him about baseball. Um, I would expect that him and Jimmy Garcia are going to pitch tonight <laughs> whether things are going well oh, or not no Romano no Swanson no Pearson and probably no May uh, maybe no Mesa and we've seen the leash is shorter on Manoa now and we really yeah. have to reframe our expectations of how long Alec how deep Alec Manoa is going to go into his outing misspoke Mesa should be available but Romano's pitched three of the last four Swanson's pitched three of the last four including two in a row Pearson's pitched each of the last two days and that was only the second time all year they've asked him to do that so yeah, it's uh I'd imagine none of those three guys are maybe Romano in a like absolute emergency situation since he only took six pitches yesterday, but I was just gonna say like Romano I could see in a pinch. Uh Pearson I would say is definitely down. Swanson's like back on track for seventy eight appearances this year, which is unsustainable. That has to change. So could be an important Trevor Richards game. And like I said, you're, you're going to see Jimmy Garcia here uh, tonight. And uh, I don't know, probably likely Jay Jackson too, honestly, because he's very likely going back to AAA Buffalo tomorrow when Chris Bassett returns. Yeah, why not uh, Why not use him, right? So you, you might as well use him. But hey, look, the, the game tells you how you can use guys, right? Like John yeah. Schneider could use a big lead here. When's the last time he was managing a game that was like 7-1? It's been a while. Yeah. It's, just, I mean, the closest thing was the 4 nothing yeah. lead yesterday. And then, you know, going to Nate. What did you think of going to Nate Pearson in the sixth inning for a second consecutive day? Obviously, he's been unbelievable. But a question we were kicking around last week is like, are you using him as a multi-inning guy? Are you saving him for leverage now? It, it was two solo shots. So, like, when you throw that hard, maybe it's going to happen. But the, the decision there that went into that. I liked the test, seeing him on back-to-back days, something he hasn't done a lot. And it's something that if you want to use Nate Pearson as a weapon later this year and into the postseason, he's going to have to go on back-to-back days. Mm -hmm. So you want to, to sort of get him over that hump now and get him used to it, get him to exposed to it. We saw the velo down a little bit yesterday. Not surprising, right? You go... Right. It was back-to-back, -back, but even, like, Saturday's game started late because of a Mets ceremony, and it was it was already supposed to be a 4-10 first pitch. Ended up being, like, 440. Yeah. So it was sort of a day game after a night game situation. Um, and obviously, like, he was electric on Saturday. But, yeah, the velo wasn't quite there. And it was against a pocket of the order as well that had just seen him on Saturday. Mm. So Marte had seen him the, the night before, right? Like, And also Marte hit out... A fastball, and I get it. Nate Pearson has to use his fastball, but look at what Starling Marte does against breaking balls. Not much at right. all. And Nate Pearson struck him out on Saturday with six consecutive sliders. I'm not sure why he went to his fastball there. I mean, maybe Marte. just thinking I've shown it to him so much. I guess so. Maybe thinking like Marte was thinking he's getting breaking ball, yeah. but uh, Marte saw a fastball and hit out of the park. Yeah. Right? And I don't know the last time Marte sat breaking balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's clearly like has a lot of trouble against them. I would have just spammed him breaking balls if I was Nate Pearson and, and Alejandro or it would have been Heineman at that point, yeah. I guess in that situation. Uh, and then, I mean, giving up a home run to Pete Alonso is like, there's no shame in Welcome that. to the big leagues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, by the way, the name you mentioned, uh, or the, the player you mentioned is Wes Parsons, who uh, I, I should have been able to pull it because it's the name of like my childhood best friend. Um, 
not the same guy. Uh, he pitched for Atlanta and Colorado in the majors in 2019, but has not been playing affiliated ball since then. But this is where they're at. These are right there. If they, yep. if they are taking a flyer on Wes Parsons, I expect that they would take a flyer on Zach Plesak yeah. if there was a fit there and if he was willing to bring, come yeah. in on a non-40 deal. Just got to grease the wheels on the non-40 deal thing. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about Vlad having a pretty good weekend, Brandon Belt being the self-proclaimed MVP, and we're going to take a, a look at what the hierarchy might be in a reimagined John Schneider bullpen once guys are rested up enough to uh, have an actual leverage chart. Arden Zwelling stays with us as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, still beside me, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. A lot of great work from Arden on Sportsnet.ca over the weekend series in the Mets. Not quite up yet, but early this afternoon, you'll be able to see another one focusing on George Springer and some of the improvements he's made. Obviously, his May was uh, better than his April, and June's not off to a bad start here either. Some of that just balls finding holes, you know, the soft liner drops in or it doesn't, things like that. But this weekend you know, a, a pretty good snapshot of the refinement in the approach at the, at the play. And I know you talked to, to George Springer about it. What has helped him kind of get back to the George Springer we expected over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I think he's making much better swing decisions right now than he was earlier in the year. I wonder if he was chasing it a little bit earlier on this season when he's seeing some of those poor results. Remember, there was a stretch there where he was like leading baseball and the differences between the negative difference between his expected stats and his actual stats. You look at what he did in this Mets series, he saw 23 pitches outside the zone, swung at only three of them. Ooh. So that is a guy whose like, process, whose approach is really locked in right now, just really dialed in. And that sets such a tone atop the Blue Jays lineup. You think about what Brandon Belt has been able to do this year. The guy never chases. Uh, the guy never expands his zone. That's been his approach. That's been really consistent all year long. And you see a lot of players sort of fluctuate with that throughout the year. It's so hard to just be that dedicated and committed and prepared to not chase but to see george springer doing that this weekend facing guys like verlander like senga you know like robertson really good pitching from the mets this weekend that that's just been a consistent thing for springer throughout this stretch now which very quietly over the last four or five weeks he has just looked like himself again with like a 150 wrc plus he's like pulled his season numbers up a lot he started in such a hole it's going to take him longer, but the strikeout to walk is like one-to-one over the last several weeks. And obviously you've seen a lot you know, more power from him. The extra base hits uh, have returned. You're seeing stuff in the field that you weren't seeing before as well. He takes a, a base hit away from Pete Alonso and right with Bassett on the hill in like the seventh inning late in his outing comes in, makes a great diving play on one of those like 50, 50, you just got to like believe in yourself and go for it once because if you miss it, it's probably getting by you mm-hmm. and you're really in trouble, although maybe not with Lonzo running. And then there was also an instance when the Blue Jays beat the Rays like 20 to one earlier on in that game. Springer had like four hits that day earlier on in the game against an actual pitcher. He beat out an infield single, ran over 30 feet per second in sprint speed. Hadn't run that Still fast. Still got it. Hadn't run that fast since last June. 
So that tells you George Springer is feeling pretty good right now. He's feeling well and healthy uh, and very quietly back to uh, back to his old ways. So he's played 50. I, I have some follow-ups on the, the swing decisions and some interesting numbers about Springer in that regard, but the, he's played 58 games so far. And, and obviously, you know, ebbs and flows in performance, whatever. But the fact that he is pretty much every day at the top of that Blue Jays lineup how much of that do you or do they attribute to the move to right field and continuing to learn what works well for, for George Springer's body? And how much of it is just, you know, I mean, there's a, a little bit of a randomness to when you get hurt, but it certainly seems like the move to right field is agreeing with his body so far. Yeah, it's a little bit stress, a little bit less stress on the legs, I would imagine, particularly when you're playing your home games on turf. Like that's got to help. You also see him get kind of those those DH days in there as well. Mm-hmm. The the big physical malady for Springer this year was sickness. Yeah. Like he had that viral infection that was going around the Blue Jays clubhouse really bad. He had it for like two weeks. Yeah. He was on antibiotics. I'd imagine lost some weight. He did lose some weight. His weight fluctuated, kind of went up and, and down. Um, and he was, you know, his lungs were uh, rough <laughs> in between innings. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, like talking to even people around the team, they were saying we're surprised he's even playing right now. It was that trip where they went Boston, Pittsburgh, Philly, and people were saying, I, I don't know how he's suiting up. And he actually missed two games on that trip, mm-hmm. like late scratch because of yeah. the illness. That was around the same time Bassett was like, we, we thought maybe it was a lower back thing, but it was like, uh, you are dead in the dugout in between innings thing. Yeah, it was like a you are a zombie right now on yeah. the mound. Um, so yeah, playing through that certainly didn't help. Like I actually asked him, you know, could you have run as hard as you did in Tampa or like booked it the way you did to grab that ball off Alonzo's bat if you're still sick? And he said to me, I would have died if I did that. <laughs> so uh, he was not feeling his best for a while there. So I think that's part of it as well. It's just, yeah. just feeling better physically. So in, with respect to the swing decisions things, StatCast lets us look at, you know, how much of a player's contribution or, or their ability at the plate so far. And this is results-based mostly, but how much of it has to do with, you know, your ability to not chase pitches, your ability to lay off wasted pitches. Some of that is also how often are pitchers trying to pitch around you and what do you do with that? Now, George Springer is near the top of, the league in how well he handles chase pitches. His, his chase percentile is down to the 81st percentile. So, you know, in the top 20% of guys that not swinging at bad pitches, that's been worth an estimated nine runs for him so far. Well, right behind him are Matt Chapman and Brandon Bell with eight each. This really does feel like it. And we know Vlad and Bo, you know, Vlad can at times be very selective, but you want both of those guys to feel comfortable being aggressive and jumping early in counts and things like that. But Springer, Chapman, Belt, as the three kind of veteran guys in this lineup, what does it say to you that all three of those guys grade out so well? And yeah, obviously there are instances where they swing at a bad pitch or whatever, but the three of those guys in particular being so mature and so, I guess, deliberate with their approach at the plate and to that degree so far and i wonder where wit merrifield ranks in that as well because just anecdotally i feel like i see him making some like he has some good takes i mean he's he's there like okay. he's he's above yeah. average but he's not yeah. uh yeah he's not near that like springer chapman and belt are all like in the top class of the league i just have those two ghost fork takes in my mind yeah from wit on the weekend where i was like how did you not swing at those pitches that's crazy and it, the other thing the blue jays were contending with on the weekend was like a tough strike zone yeah well belt had a couple of them right belt had two uh unjust strikeouts and, and belt should just fire up a stack cast page show the umpire like look i hey, do man. not swing 
at bad pitches and I swing at the good ones. Like the, look at my look at my swing decisions. For him to stick to his approach through that, for Vladdy to stick to his approach. Mm-hmm. So you like the plate appearance where Vlad comes up with that double up the third base line. And yes, that was a pitch like off of his shoelaces. We still got the barrel on it. Mm-hmm. It was still like 92 off his bat or something earlier in that plate appearance. First pitch, I think, was like a cutter well in, called for a strike. John Schneider gets ejected. Like all this stuff going on all day slash night, because that game was kind of at a weird time. Uh, that strike zone was atrocious in mm-hmm. both directions. And the Blue Jays were contending with that this this weekend and sticking to, as you said, patience, discipline, a, a plan, an approach to the plate, understanding how they're going to be pitched, understanding where their damage areas are. And you make a good point because for a guy like Bo Bichette, he has to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Like that's just part and parcel to his approach. You're Even when Bo Bichette is like super hot or in a slump, you're always going to see him waving at sliders. Like you're just always going to see him expanding because that's just part of it for him is being aggressive and fearless like that. But- and he's also, in terms of these run values, number two in all of baseball in terms of pitches on the edge and yeah. the damage you can do with those and selecting those. Luisa Rise is the only player doing better on those. And his entire thing is I'm a two strike bat the ball guy. Yeah. I don't strike out. That's his entire thing. Um, But like blending that, the aggressiveness of a bow of a Vlad with the patience and discernment and the pitches per plate appearance of a Chapman of a belt, those two regularly atop the league in those categories. Springer doesn't get enough credit. I think for the lack of chase and for the swing Mm -hmm. decisions they makes when you blend that all together, you have the makings of a good offense. Look, like I, I get it. The Blue Jays, they, they haven't been scoring a ton of runs this year, and it feels like there's a lot of nights where like, man, you know, they're one for 11 with runners in scoring position mm-hmm. again, whatever. On the season, by Wade runs created plus, they're like a top five offense. Yep. By, by batting average, top five offense. Mm-hmm. By OBP, top five offense. By slugging, merely top 10. Yeah. It's been a good offense. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but it really has been a good offense in the context of where things are at in MLB this year. And it's tough too, because like sometimes it's a matter of like sequencing, right? Like you get, you get your hits when there's no one on base. And then when someone comes up, you're snake bitten. And obviously there was that two or three week stretch where, you know, no matter how small the sample, it's really bad when for a couple weeks you rank 30th in baseball with runners in scoring position. Like there's no way around it. Um, I was looking at actually, I had a listener ask me the other day, hey, is there a way to see like actual versus expected results with runners in scoring position? And there isn't a clean way, but you can do it in baseball savant if you look around. Yeah. And not a shocker, I don't think. The Jays were one of the biggest gaps in terms of actual versus expected. You, you know, you have good swing decisions, you take walks, you don't strike out a boatload. And sometimes there are two week stretches where it just doesn't find the hole for you or whatever. And I can picture George Springer lining out to Alex Bregman in Houston with runners in scoring position. I can picture Matt Chapman hitting uh, like a 405 foot out with runners in scoring position in Anaheim. Like I can picture those instances mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Um, and I'm kind of curious now to run my own search on Savant and, and dig into that a little bit. But uh, it's not, it wasn't like wildly extreme, but I think yeah. they had the fifth biggest gap between actual and, and expected results with, with batted balls and runners and scoring positions. So it's, it's notable at least. I mean, it, it certainly helps make up for the difference of, well, they're fifth in WRC plus and batting average and OBP and not fifth in runs. Like where, <laughs> how does that, how does that happen? Are these stats, are these junk? I don't think batting average and OBP are junk stats. Like yeah. they tell us, they tell us a good amount. Um, 
So yeah, yeah ultimately they're going to want to score some runs. Like I know we we can like break this thing down ten yeah. ways from Sunday. Ultimately, the Blue Jays are going to need some to score some more runs. Like yeah. that's really important in and, baseball. But talking to guys after yesterday's game, even on Saturday, talking about Chapman after yesterday's game, just a, a, I'm seeing a, a lot of discussion about how good the preparation has been, how consistent the approach has been, how quality the at bats have been. Even if you make an out, which you're going to make outs is baseball. Force the pitcher to throw five pitches. Don't make an out on two pitches. Make an out on a good pitch to swing at. Don't make, you know, don't get yourself out. Other guys are going to get you out. Justin Verlander's going to get you out. He's really <laughs> good. He's a Hall of Famer. Make sure he gets you out. Don't get yourself out on one, two pitches. And I think that the Blue Jays are really happy with that, uh, you know, how that's looked lately. They feel like the quality of their at-bats has risen in recent weeks. First three games of this series against the Astros, they're going to see pitchers they haven't seen a lot, if at all. Uh, the Astros continue to be able to pull these starters out of nowhere and like they're dead, like so they're going to go Brandon Belak, Hunter Brown, Renell Blanco for these first 3 games. That is uh I, I might have the order wrong here but an 11th round pick, a 5th round pick and a long long ago international signing. These are not the fruits of um you know the tanking years, right? Like they're they're past yeah. that wave of guys. Sure, you could point to maybe Framber Valdez as as one of those who will get the the fourth game of this series. These but, are developmental success stories. Yeah, so I I guess first um cuz I it stands out to me in contrast to, you know, where the Jays are at, obviously, in terms of that pitching. And it gets a little better from double A on down, but certainly a triple A right now. The Rays are obviously very synonymous with having that pitching depth as well. Um, I know they're not going to tell us this explicitly, but like how much of the James click edition is, is probably going to be focused on <laughs> how the heck can you have major league like Brandon be like Hunter Brown, Renel Blanco. If you line those three up in a series at the start of the season, you're like, Oh sweet. The Astros are really banged up. And it's like, no, every one of those guys is pitching like a mid rotation arm and they just keep doing yeah. it. Well, it's not like James click has some sort of secret sauce. I mean, his, his background is data and R and D yeah. and I know he's here to kind of look at the blue Jays systems and, um, their models, their processes, and kind of see how they can get better. Uh, and look, one area where the Blue Jays absolutely need to get better going forward is pitching development. Because what they're doing with starting pitchers right now, signing a different veteran starter for $20 million every offseason is not sustainable. Like you cannot continue giving out Kikuchi deals and Bassett deals. Like you can't just do that every winter. It hamstrings you with other parts of your roster. You need to. Start. You have to hit on then. Like I mean, the perfect example of it is the Matt Chapman thing, right? Where yeah. he's a free agent. You'd love to keep Matt Chapman, but if you keep having to spend money on starters over and over again, you're basically. I mean, I'm not saying it's a done deal, but your hand is kind of forced. Of like, are Elvis Martinez or Addison Barger ready for third base? Because they better be come next year because all the money has gone into starting pitching. I think you'd probably love to keep someone named Bo Bichette and someone named Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yeah. as well. And that's not going to be cheap either. So at some point you need to find that surplus value somewhere else on your roster. And the Blue Jays just haven't had those success stories on the starting pitching side mm -hmm. lately. Part of it's you trade a Simeon Woods Richardson and you trade a Gunnar Hoagland, but also part of it's like you select a TJ Zoic and he doesn't work out for you. He's been yeah. a, really, a really high pick on TJ Zoic and he's not the guy or it's uh you know an Adam Klofenstein who's pitching well yeah we talked year. about him a little earlier in the show yeah but he's he, leads the entire organization in strikeouts right so yeah he's he's it's great this year but for a while there he was kind of lost in the wilderness mm -hmm. and not helping you Joey Murray gets hurt um yeah, like there's a million stories like this like Nate Pearson gets hurt gets sick 
now he's in your bullpen. I mean, like the you know Thomas Hatch, somebody who you traded for and looked like he had potential there for a while, then he took a big step back. And you gave him every chance to stick as a starter before moving him to the bullpen. Yeah. So like the Blue Jays have not done a good enough job of internally developing starting pitching, and that's one of the hardest things to do in in baseball. Like it really is like a game of attrition with internal pitching development because so many pitchers get hurt and so many pitchers go through maddening struggles that are almost unexplainable. You look at Alec Manoa. You're also drafting some, in a lot of cases, you're drafting kids before they're physically developed. So like a guy grows or doesn't grow and and you're projecting, like, I I don't know. It's it's certainly an exact science, but the the Astros are doing pretty well with it. Uh, Quickly, I want to touch, so you mentioned Pearson is in the bullpen now and he seems to have, uh, the trust of manager John Schneider. So obviously Jordan Romano is the closer. I think we can pretty safely say the absolute next highest leverage situation is going to Eric Swanson. Agreed. Uh, we, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable uh, the leverage to which he's been using. Now I, I have the the leverage John Schneider's used guys in here as well as some of their performance. Um, this is how this is for the entire season. So not rec- not specifically recently, but after Romano and Swanson, it's gone Meza, Garcia, Pop when he was around, then Pearson. Simber Richards and like comically low, like nobody in baseball is pitching in lower leverage than Anthony Bass. He's completely like, right. I, I, and I know there's the other discussion around him right now, but like nobody has been treated with kid gloves more than Anthony Bass uh, on and off the field uh, this season so far. So in your mind, uh, Romano Swanson at the top, have Trevor Richards and Nate Pearson, and this is awkward because they're also your length guys. Like, are those the next guys up from the right-hand side? And, and in Richards' case, maybe not even from the right-hand side? Hell yeah. We saw that on the weekend. We saw a tie game, late leverage, when earlier this season, it would have been Bass, it would have been Garcia, and now it's Richards and Pearson. And it's delicate because Richards is also your length guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's also someone who can go three innings for you. Like, the Blue Jays are comfortable throwing Richards 50 pitches. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't gone north of that since he he was still a starter in I think 2020 was the last time what's this 2023 yeah I think the last time he went over 50 pitches was 2020 right but I mean if you can go three innings with on 32 pitches why not no the, and I've asked somebody and they told yeah. me yeah we'll throw him for 50 if we need to yeah so he's like Alec Manoa insurance at times and then he's also tie game eighth inning yeah. <laughs> leverage at times Big, like a lefty heavy part of the order and you like his change up to neutralize lefties and those are very disparate roles and then you're also wondering how long he can continue uh throwing the least amount of pitches in the zone of anyone in baseball yeah. and getting the highest chase rate of anyone in baseball yeah. like you know at some point like a team is just going to not swing and they're going to say you're going to get to four balls before you get to three strikes because you throw over two-thirds of your pitches outside the strike zone and we'll take our chances if you locate three good for you tip my cap but by like what has happened to this point more often than not, you will walk me if I don't swing. Also throws this change up more than anyone in baseball. So it's, uh, you know, yeah. even Devin Williams throws the change up more conservatively than than Trevor Richards. So you wonder, but for right now, I mean, he's he's right near the tippy top. So what do you do about the fact that in terms of investment, in terms of what we thought coming in, in terms of experience, Garcia, Bass, and Simber in some order are at the very bottom of the pile. Yeah, it's not great when you look at, and again, there's obviously a whole other conversation now about Anthony Bass, but just purely as a pitcher on the mound, this is a guy who was like top 10 ERA in FIP the last two years among relievers and now is, uh, you know, not somebody you trust at all in leverage. Yeah. Jimmy and, Gar- and the ERA has come down with Bass. Nine of his last 10 outings have been scoreless, but not even a sniff of yeah. leverage. No, and because the Blue Jays don't trust him mm-hmm. in it because he was mislocating his fastball and the slider wasn't as effective as yeah. it had been. He made a little adjustment, 
You know, see if the results are better. We'll see if he's even on this team over the second half of the season. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Garcia is someone the Blue Jays got to get figured out as well. They're trying to just kind of like pare down what he does on the mound. He throws so many different pitches. It does so many different things. They're trying to get him honed in and focused on just like, let's just do, you know, maybe just fastball slider today (laughs) or just whatever. Maybe just two seam curveball, whatever it's going to be, whatever the right approach is for the matchup. Let's just get you honed in on that and try to get you out of those fat parts of the zone where your fastball has been getting hammered. The Blue Jays need a solution there um, because they don't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of optionable relievers when Zach Pop is healthy. And I mean, he is healthy, but when he's back at the big league level, he's going to make another outing at AAA. So he's not going to come yeah, straight he's done back. two at Dunedin, so AAA yes. is next. He's going to go to Buffalo next. Um, but like he is somebody who has a lot of potential to be a late game weapon for you. The unfortunate thing for him is he's also optionable. Mm-hmm. And if the Blue Jays bullpen looks like it does now when he's ready to come off the IL, he might just get optioned because of roster crunch. Yeah. But towards the later part of the season, the Blue Jays are hopeful Zach Pop's going to be like their Clay Holmes. Beyond that, they need to get somebody fixed from internally or go outside the organization and add someone you yeah. can throw in leverage. Garcia and Bass both out of option or not optionable. And I believe Adam Simber has now passed the service time threshold to which he'd have to approve of an option uh, as well. That happened right before his fan of my Alston. Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Thanks for taking the time out, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Anytime. Uh, and that George Springer article will be up shortly on Sportsnet.ca if you, you want to catch up on all of Arden's great writing uh, from the weekend. It is Brandon Belak against Alec Manoa tonight, 7 o'clock. Blair and Barker will have you to set that up from 5 to 7. Uh, the Jeff Merrick Show is next as they break down game one of the Stanley Cup Finals and, and set up game two. Uh, thanks to Arden. Thanks to Doug Fox for coming on. Thanks to Jeff, Lance, and Jennifer uh, behind the glass. Jays Talk Plus will be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. as the Jays continue their series against the Houston Astros on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360.